What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Our Bibles, we're in Isaiah chapter 50 today. And when you find that chapter, Isaiah 50, let's stand up for we recognize here at Gospel Fellowship that God's Word is inspired. It is infallible, which means it does not fail, and it is inerrant, which means it contains nothing but perfect truth for us. So let's stand in the presence of God as we read his word, Isaiah chapter 50. We're going to read verses 4 through 10 this morning, so listen to the word of the living God. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens he awakens my ear to those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine you're watching a painter, uh, a master artist do his work. And you are sitting or standing before him as he works on the canvas in front of you. You have no idea what he's painting as he begins, but you're just watching, somewhat amazed at his skill and his technique. And first of all, he, he begins to paint the background. It doesn't tell you much about what the subject matter is. He's working here mostly in, in grays and deep blues and other dark hues. And then as he paints, and you're still trying to figure out what's being painted here, you begin to recognize some large a vertical and horizontal marks and as he switches brushes from time to time you begin to you begin to see something forming in front of you though you're you're still not sure exactly what it is at this point it could be practically anything it could be a landscape it could be a cityscape it could be a, a piece of abstract art for as far as you know it it could be a, a still life it could be a portrait 
And the more the artist works, the more he paints, the more you're sure of it. Yes, it is a portrait. I know this now because I see a figure emerging on the canvas. And as he begins to add more and more detail to the portrait, the more and more you realize you know what it is he's painting. You've been drawn in to the compelling work of art that he's placing before you on the canvas with his pigment and his brush and his palette. You know this person that he's painting now. You can see the detail. And it's compelling. And it's brilliant. And it's, overwhel and it's overwhelming. And in that sense, this is what the prophet Isaiah has been doing now for some 50 chapters. He has used various forms of verbal media. He's not a, a painter with, with paints and brushes, but Isaiah is clearly an artist. And what he's been painting before us, uh, the subject matter is becoming ever the more clear as we work through this book. He doesn't use brushes. He uses words. He uses sermons. He uses metaphors, he uses imagery, he uses songs, he uses poems. Isaiah, the master artist, is using all kind of verbal media to paint for us this portrait of one who is now clearly emerging as we're in Isaiah chapter 50 together. Now this would be a good point for us today to just pause before we go into some new territory and just review everything that we've covered so far in this book. And I'm going to do this very fast, so hang with me. And I do want your Bible open to Isaiah chapter 50. We're going to get there to the third servant song here in just a moment. But let's just recover what Isaiah has done for us over 50 chapters. Big picture, Isaiah has obviously been painting for us a portrait of one who is to come. And we've seen this all along, all the way from, from back to chapter 7, verse 14. When Isaiah told us that the virgin would conceive and bear a son and that his name would be Emmanuel, we've had this idea that there is a Messiah coming forth. And in that text, the virgin shall be with child. There's two things that are like going off like bells in our minds. First of all, virgins don't ordinarily conceive. And second of all, we're told in Isaiah 7:14 that the name of the child is going to be Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. And Matthew's gospel, Matthew tells us in no uncertain terms that this is fulfilled in Christ. A couple chapters later in Isaiah chapter 9, he tells us some names, some titles that are going to be given to this child. And he says, for to us a child is born. And he's going to be called by these four titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And now we know without any ambiguity that this coming one cannot be one like you and me. Because if we were to call anybody, prophet, priest, or king, by these titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, or Prince of Peace, it would be blasphemy to, to lay down those titles before anyone but the Messiah himself. And then Isaiah in chapter 11 tells us that the stump of Jesse will spring forth again. And obviously that's a reference to the kingly line of David himself, Jesse being David's father. But the tree has been cut off and now we have a stump that's shooting forth a new branch. And here, here we are to think of the kingly line of David cut off as the northern kingdom is conquered by Assyria, 722 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah conquered by Babylon, 586 B.C. The kingship is over from Isaiah's perspective now. 
And yet he tells us that one will spring forth from this trunk that has been severed like a new branch. And we're to interpret that as the Messiah himself. And then throughout the rest of the book, and I'm not going to do every chapter here in review, but Isaiah has been caught up, hasn't he, in political turmoil. He's been caught up telling us about battles and sieges and wars. And now we're to the exile. And all along, Isaiah has not stopped painting for us details about this Messiah Christ figure who is to come. Isaiah has been dropping breadcrumbs like Hansel and Gretel, as it were, telling us that this one is coming. And now as we're into the later portions of the book of Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah has sketched out for us four what we're calling the servant songs, which help us to fill in those details of what Messiah is going to look like when he comes. And this morning, we're going to exegete together the third of those servant songs. Now, really quick, let's do this as a church. Let's just review the first two that we looked at, lest, lest we happen to have forgot where they are in the Bible. The first servant song came to us in Isaiah chapter 42. So just flip back with me just a couple of chapters in your Bible, pages turning here. Isaiah chapter 42, this first servant song is given, and it said, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. And this is a very glorious servant song. It tells us of one who's going to come with light and justice and power and truth. And it says in verse 3 of 42, that a bruised reed he's not going to break, and a faintly burning wick he's not going to quench. And he will faithfully bring forth Justice, And then it says later in verse 7 that this, this figure, this servant who's going to emerge, he's going to do wondrous things to the nations. He's going to, for instance, open the eyes of the blind and bring prisoners out of the dungeon. This is a glorious servant indeed. We saw the second servant song just a chapter or so ago. Isaiah chapter 49. Flip with me to Isaiah chapter 49. And if the theme of the first servant song is hope, the mission of the servant is given in chapter 49 because it says in verse 5 of 49 that the reason that he's coming is to bring back Jacob. That's a reference to the tribes of Israel, right? To bring Jacob back to him that Israel might be gathered to him. So he primarily has a mission to Israel to recall the 12 tribes, not only to return them to the land, but think bigger than that. Think deeper than that. He's to call Israel back to their God through repentance and faith. And not only that, but the servant is given what we might consider to be a, a global mission. He's not just a Jewish Messiah deliverer, but we're told in chapter 49, uh, verse 6, that he is not only going to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel, but look at this, middle of verse 6. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So we know here now that the servant, the Ebed Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, the one who comes to serve the Lord in his faithfulness and obedience, his mission is to bring back Israel through repentance and faith. But more than that, to preach a global gospel of light and healing and salvation to all the nations Without distinction, this is a very big task that the servant has before him. And so we're going to come to the fourth servant song a little bit later. That's the one you already know. That's Isaiah 53, that great messianic prophecy, which we're going to cover in some detail 
in the weeks to come. And as much as we might want to jump to Isaiah 53 today, we've got the third servant song on our desks to work through this morning. So let's go back to our main text, Isaiah chapter 53. We're looking primarily at verses 4 through 10 in this text. And here we see the servant in the third servant song speaking. In fact, the servant begins to speak somewhat out of the darkness. Look at verse 3 in your text. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. But out of this darkness, the servant begins to speak what we call in literature class a soliloquy. Remember that great word? It's one of my favorite words from high school. Say it one time. You'll feel really good. Soliloquy. Isn't that beautiful? What is a soliloquy? A soliloquy is when one person speaks a monologue and it's assumed that everybody out there in the audience is listening on into what that speaker is saying. The third servant song is a monologue where the servant himself speaks, but we're surprised here a little bit because there's a, there, there's, there's a turning of the corner here in the third servant song that we know because we're Christians, but in, the, but in the context of Isaiah prophesying to the exiles, they wouldn't have seen this coming. So pretend you're surprised. The thing that's startling about the third servant song is not so much that it's disjointed from the first two servant songs, but rather the theme that it takes is so dark. Whereas the servant was spoken of in these glowing terms of light and hope and mission and rescuing prisoners from dungeons in the previous two, now what, what we see here in the third song is that this, this Christ, this figure, this, this stump of the, the seed of Jesse, he's going to come and suffer himself. In fact, that's the theme of the third servant song is the suffering of the servant. And so with, uh, with our Bibles open, let's begin to comb through some of the details here in this third servant song. Now the, now, the first thing that he says is that he comes to sustain with the word him who is weary. And that actually, that actually matches up quite nicely with, with what he said in, in a previous song. But no sooner does he say that than he admits something rather Rather dark in verse 6. Look at this. He says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. Now we know the story. We know the sufferings of Christ. But imagine that you're in exile for a moment and you're hearing about this one who was told to be the deliverer. He's going to be the restorer of Israel. He's going to be the light to the nations. And now, how is he going to do this? Through suffering? Yes. Now, many people have tried to conquer the world throughout world history. Few have been very successful in getting any ground. Alexander the Great, 300s BC, did a fairly impressive job of conquering the known world in his time. He did it in his early 20s. So that's rather astonishing in and of itself. But even in, despite Alexander the Great's success, what he conquered was just a fraction of a sliver of the actual whole world, right? And many, many others have tried. Genghis Khan tried to conquer the world in 1200 AD. And likewise, just like Alexander the Great and the peak of his power, how did he do it? How did he gain such a large swath of of the land of Asia, a massive land mass. How did he do it? Well, he used brutality and he used warfare. Same thing as Alexander the Great. 
And many others have tried throughout world history to conquer the nations. We think of Stalin, we think of Hitler, we think of the perverted ideologies of communism and the madness of socialism. All of these ideologies have attempted to gain global dominion. But notice the, 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 uh, the commonality between all of these would-be world dominators is, is their methodology was brutality, warfare, Violence, strife, cultural upheaval, destruction, terror. And yet, yet here we see one who is going to gather the nations to the glory of God. And instead of using brutality and violence and mercilessness and savagery like everybody else who's tried to conquer the world, the Ebed Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, is going to do so shockingly and surprisingly through his own suffering, not the inflicting of suffering on others, but through his own suffering. And this is what is so startling about the third servant song. Now let's look at a couple of the details here. First of all, in verse six, it says, I gave my back to those who strike. Think about that metaphor just for a moment. I gave my back. I exposed my back to those who would attack me. Now we still use expressions today like so-and-so stabbing me in the back. What do, we, what do we mean by that? Or we'll say to somebody, watch your back. Well, see, the back is the, the broadest surface of your body. It's in direct line to the vitals. It's the, the one aspect of yourself that your eyes cannot see to protect yourself. Your back is essentially a large target for your enemies. And if your enemy strikes you in the back, right to the, to the heart, to the lungs, to the kidneys, if your enemy strikes you through the back, usually one of two things has happened to you. Either you've been strategically outmaneuvered and you've been ambushed, right? Because they surprised you and fired upon you from the back. Or else... You have fled in cowardice, and so you have been cut down even as you are fleeing away from one who is greater than you. That's normally how we get shot in the back or stabbed in the back or arrowed in the back or speared in the back. But the servant here says, I gave my back. He didn't get strategically outmaneuvered, and he certainly wasn't fleeing from the battlefield. He is stricken in the back because he exposed his back. Notice the intentional wording here. I gave my back. I gave up my back. Now, what are we to attribute the meaning of this metaphor to? Well, we might think, first of all, about the, the, all the slander that Christ absorbed. That Christ was repeatedly maligned with words. He was insulted everywhere he went. Some people loved him, of course. Other people hated him. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans the self-religious, the prideful, they all assaulted him. And Christ simply exposed his back to all of those insults and he absorbed them into himself, never once returning fire, mind you. And so we might think of this expression, I gave my back, is somewhat metaphorical for receiving insult and slander and malignity through words. But also we might think of this a little bit more literally here in the very flogging of Christ before his crucifixion, you know, of course, that before Jesus went to the cross, what did they do to him? 
Well, they brutalized him through this ancient process called flogging. Thankfully, most modern societies today do not carry out this form of chastisement or discipline on the body. But thinking back to the ancient Roman culture, when they were to crucify somebody, and all four Gospels are in complete agreement as to how Jesus died, all four Gospels are in agreement that he was crucified, all four Gospels are in agreement that he was flogged and chastised with the whip prior to his crucifixion, why did the Romans use the process of flogging prior to crucifixion? I'll tell you why. You ready? Because it's easier said than done to get a man to lay down on the cross for you. Men who would be crucified do not have their hands and feet pierced willingly. They will fight. It takes a number of men to get a man down on a cross. A man who would be crucified would scratch, he would bite, he would claw, he would kick, he would spit, he would do absolutely anything to prevent himself from going to the cross because he knew that when he goes to the cross, it's over. And so they would flog the man, they would chastise the man with whips because it weakened him through blood loss and pain to the point that he could be much more easily malleable and put on that cross and pinned there. And yet Jesus says, what does he say here? What does the servant say? I gave my back. He willingly endures this flogging and this chastisement. And not only that, but look on at the next line in verse 6. It says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. Now, if you, if you want to insult somebody today in our modern context, you have a lot of options of how to insult somebody, right? Uh, if, you, if you want to speak a, a negative word about somebody, you can go on Twitter and you can at them. You can call them out publicly on social media if you want to. Uh, you can... Spray paint profanities on their garage at night. If you want to do that, you want to really insult somebody, you can do that. You can key their car. If you want to insult somebody and mock them and demean them, you can, you can scream at them like a psycho in a Walmart parking lot or something like that. There's a lot of ways you can insult somebody, right? But in the ancient world, there was two ways that you would dehumanize somebody with your, your insulting. The first was to spit in their face, which we still understand the meaning of that today, right? Somebody spits in your face, you've had a bad day. Obviously, they're expressing some emotions if they're going to spit in your face. And that's what they did in the ancient world. They would spit. And then secondly, this. I've noticed this line here. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. What's going on there? Well, beard pulling or beard shaving was amongst the most degrading ways that you could humiliate a man in the ancient world. There's a story in, in 2 Samuel chapter 10, and we're not going to go there today, where David sends out some men to the Ammonites, and the Ammonites have just gotten a new king. The old previous king of the Ammonites has died, and now his son is a new king of the Ammonites. And to show his strength, when David's men show up to greet them, what does the new king of the Ammonites do? Do you remember the passage, 2 Kings 10? He shaves their beard, 
And he cuts off their cloaks at the waist, which is to say, he sent them back naked and ashamed. And so in the ancient world, if you want to mock somebody, you want to degrade somebody, you want to dehumanize somebody with your mockery, you shave them and you cut off their pants. It's absolutely humiliating, degrading, dehumanizing way to cut somebody down to the lowest. And what does the scripture say here? The third servant song tells us that our Messiah Christ is going to experience this kind of shaming, this kind of low, base mockery. And I think it's probably this very verse, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, that Jesus, when he keeps telling his disciples over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, like, you guys don't understand what's going to happen to me. In Mark chapter 831, 931, 1033, he keeps telling the disciples, I'm going to be rejected by men and spit upon and flogged and crucified. And they don't get it. They're not connecting here the suffering of the third servant song with what Jesus is about to go through. But Jesus practically quotes Isaiah 53 here in Mark 10. Listen to this. Jesus says, See, we are going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Notice Jesus puts spitting on and flogging him right next to each other. We have those two ideas exactly next to each other in Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6. And Jesus is saying, don't you see it? I'm the, I'm the servant in the third servant song. Don't you connect this with me? And they're not getting it. And... Christians, one of the things by way of application that you need to understand about being a Christ follower is that even as the servant is willing to suffer for you vicariously for our sins and for our guilt and for our shame, the Messiah will come to suffer. He has come to suffer for us on the cross. But notice that there is a call in the New Testament. There is a call for us to enter into the suffering that he has experienced for us. We too are going to suffer as believers. Do you see that in the New Testament? L listen to a couple of passages about how we enter into the suffering of the Messiah Christ. I'm just going to read several of them for you. Romans chapter 8 verse 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, okay, so there's a caveat here, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So do you want to be called a child of God? I know you do. Do you want to be glorified with him when he comes back in all of his great splendor and majesty? Do you want to be associated with him then? Then what does Paul say? Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now he suffers atoningly for us. He suffers vicariously for us. And we can't do that for him because he has no sin that needs to be atoned for. So the atoning is a one-way street. Christ atones for us in his suffering, but we need to identify with his suffering, which is to say we will enter into it and perhaps even receive some of it ourselves as we try to walk faithfully in this world. The same world that spit on our Messiah and pulled out his beard. Do you think you're going to be exempt from that? 
You think that the world is going to treat you with kid gloves because you're a child of God? Does the world owe you any favors because you identify as a Christian? The answer is no. We must be willing to enter into the suffering of our Christ. Listen to this. This is Paul again in Philippians chapter 3. Don't go there. Stay in Isaiah 50. Stay in Isaiah 50. In Philippians 3, it says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. No, definitely not that. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's the key words here. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, that I may share in his sufferings. There's another place in Acts chapter 5, we don't have time to go there this morning, where the disciples, the early apostles, are beaten for having testified to the glory of Jesus. And in Acts 5 verse 41, it says, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy of suffering for his name. Think about how ironic that is. What did they do? They rejoiced. Why? Because they had been counted worthy of what? Suffering for his name. That's what it says. And so even as Christ, the servant of the third servant song, exposes his back to the world for its malignity and its vehemence and its animosity and its hatred towards him, uh, so also recall that when Paul tells us of the armor of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6, we have protection in practically every area except for the back. There is no piece of armor for the back, is there? We got the helmet of salvation, Ephesians 6. We got the breastplate of righteousness. We got the footgear of the readiness of the gospel. We got the, the shield of faith. We got the sword of the spirit. But there is no piece of armor to protect your back, is there? And that's because we have to enter into the sufferings of Christ and be willing to suffer whatever shame the world would heap upon us for our association with Him. Jesus told us this would happen. It says. And Matthew 10, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So don't be surprised. Uh, don't, don't, don't be freaked out when they call you a liar. Don't be surprised when they insult you or our faith or our church, or our doctrines, or our beliefs. Don't be surprised when they twist our words and try to shove them back into our faces. Don't be surprised when the world gossips about Christians and maligns them and calls us bigots or phobics or whatever else they want to say to us. Don't be surprised when they mock us for being backwards or old-fashioned or whatever else they want to say about Christians. We are to enter into the suffering of our Messiah Christ. All right, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 50 and, and look at another line here in verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. This is the servant still speaking his soliloquy. 
Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Notice then, not only the sufferings of Christ, but the resolve of Christ. The determination of Christ. The willingness of Christ to receive this. There's a Hebrew idiom here that is not readily apparent to us. The phrase in verse 7 is, I have set my face like a flint. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean to set your face like a flint? Well, it's not an expression that we use anymore. It's gone out of style to speak that term. But a flint is, is a rock that's easily chipped. We make arrowheads out of flint. So picture a piece of arrowhead if you want to understand the, the imagery here. And what... What do you do when you're carving an arrowhead? Well, you chip it in, in the, the arrow or the, the piece of the stone becomes more and more severe in its angle, right? And so the Hebrews used to use that as an expression to describe a person's countenance when they become more and more resolved. So if you've ever seen a person that's extremely determined to do something, they're not smiling, Probably what's happening is they're clinching their jaw. The angle of their jaw becomes severe. And their forehead skews. And you can see the angles in their forehead. And they squint their eyes and they lower their brows. And the Hebrews would describe this as like a flint. His countenance is like a flint. The scripture says here in Isaiah that he set his face like a flint. Which means he's entirely resolved. He is determined and willing to go forth with the mission that God has assigned to him. And it's probably this line here in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, that Luke, in our gospel reading this morning, is referring back to. Remember, our best way to understand the Old Testament is to look how the New Testament interprets it, right? And in Luke chapter 9, notice this phrase. He doesn't quote the whole Hebrew idiom, but he assumes that the early readers would understand this. In Luke chapter 9, it says this. Listen, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face. So Luke is referring to Isaiah here. He sets his face like a flint. He's determined. He's resolved to go to Jerusalem. And then there's this little interaction here between Jesus and the disciples wherein uh, he's going through the villages of Samaria. Now, you remember your history here that the Samaritans and the Jews were not necessarily very fond of each other. Okay, there's this ancient tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews considered the Samaritans to be somewhat of half-breeds. And so there's this tension here, and the Samaritans don't necessarily want to receive them as they're coming through the Samaritan villages. And the disciples say, hey, Jesus, would you like us to throw some firebombs at them to get revenge? Uh, what say we call down the fire on these nasty Samaritans? That's what the disciples are saying here. But Jesus has no part in that. Why not? Because it says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He is determined. He is resolved. He has a particular mission. He has no time for your squabbles, Samaritans and Jews. He has no interest in your ancient rivalries. He has, he has no interest in your, your JV wrestling matches. Jesus' face is set like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And why is he going to Jerusalem? Well, Luke just told us because his time to be taken up was drawing near. 
He's going to Jerusalem to die. And so the third servant song points us to this willingness, this absolute willingness of our Messiah Christ to endure the suffering on our behalf. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I did a sermon on suffering, as you recall. I go back and watch the video if you forget. But I mentioned three different categories of suffering. I, I talked about mortal suffering. Do you remember this? Which is the kind of suffering that we'll all experience because we're mortals and we're going to get sick and we're going to die at some point. We're all going to go through that. And then I, I mentioned what I called transgressive suffering, which is where we bring a mess into our lives through our foolishness and through our rebellion. We sometimes make our lives worse because we act a fool and we have to suffer the consequences for that. And then I talked about providential suffering, the kind of suffering that's this big meta-narrative suffering in which we're, we're, we're parts of God's great story of redemption through history. And there's not much we can do about that. But I forgot a category. So I want to add a fourth category to my list of kinds of suffering today. If I can do that, if I can go back and amend my sermon from a couple of weeks ago, I want to add a fourth category of suffering. And, and we're going to call this voluntary suffering. Because it is also true that there's a certain type of suffering that we willingly run into. We expose ourselves to it on purpose because we must. It's the same kind of suffering that a fireman experiences when he willingly runs into a burning building. It's the kind of suffering that policemen run into when they show up to a crime scene and they don't know what's going to happen to their bodies. They're going to get shot or attacked or whatever. And Christ here, the suffering that he experiences is not just going to happen to him incidentally, but this is a voluntary, willing, vicarious suffering for us. He set his face like a flint for this suffering. Now you may say, well, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone expose their back to the whips, metaphorical and literal, of the world? Well, here, here's why. Because the Messiah Christ, the Ebed Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, he knows that he will win the world through his love more powerfully and successfully than anybody can conquer the world through hate. So let me say that again. The reason that he set his face like a flint for the suffering that he would endure is because he knew that he could win the world through the love of God, our Heavenly Father, and the mercies and the light and the goodness of the gospel far greater than anybody might ever conquer the world through hate and through violence. In fact, that was the very plan of the Lord to win the nations to himself. Now let's close up here this morning with one more observation from our text back in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 8. He says, though he suffers, though he suffers, he says in verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. The reason that he endures this great suffering on our behalf is because he knows that ultimately he will be vindicated by the Father. God, our Heavenly Father, will look upon his work, 
Though many would reject and malign him, the Father will ultimately vindicate him in verse 8. And he knows this. And it's true also for us that there are, there are several different ways that you can, you can live your life. Okay, some application here, Gospel Fellowship. You can spend your whole life living to please yourself. You can do that. Everything you do, everywhere you go, every goal you set for yourself, you can set your whole life to please yourself. And we call people like that uh, hedonists or narcissists or selfish or whatever else those people will, will ascribe themselves to. But you can live for yourself. You can do that. Or, secondly, you can, you can constantly live to please the other. Uh, you, can, you can live to make everybody else happy. You can try to, uh, to, to please all the people in your life around you. Usually that doesn't work. Uh, we can call those people populists or man-pleasers or codependents or whatever else we want, we want to call those people. You can constantly live to try to make other people happy. Or, or third... You can do what the, what the Messiah does here in Isaiah 50, and that is to live for the ultimate vindication of the Father. And if you're going to leave, uh, excuse me, if you're going to live to please God or Heavenly Father, then as a result of that, you're probably not going to make everybody else happy. It's going to be impossible to do both. And so at some point, you will have to choose who you're going to live for. And that's why the passage closes up, or at least we're going to end it here with verse 10, with a summons to align oneself with the Messiah. Look at verse 10. It's a question. It's a question that I pose to you this morning. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? The servant has ended his soliloquy. <clears throat> Presumably in verse 9. And Isaiah, the author of this book, begins to speak again and he, he asks a question. Now, we're, we're Presbyterians here, so we don't do altar calls very well. We're not going to dim the lights and we're not going to have the band come up and play 17 verses of Just As I Am or anything like that. We don't do that. Uh, we, don't, we don't make people come forward or sign pledge cards or anything like that. Because we believe that God's word is the effectual call to the heart and that it's the spirit that does that and not anything we can do to manipulate the situation by mood manipulation or anything like that. So we're not going to do that. I am simply going to end with verse 10, though, because it is a question. And the question is pretty simple. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of the servant? Is that you? Does that describe you? Uh, will you willingly call him your Lord and your Christ and your King? Uh, does this describe you in verse 10? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Does that describe you? Are you willing, therefore, to align yourself with his suffering, no matter what slander or mockery may come your way? Are you ready for that? One of, my, one of my fears as a, as a pastor, if I'm completely honest, is that Christians in our culture today, and perhaps even here in our church, we are simply not ready for the resistance that may be ours in the coming days. 
And so let those words echo in your ears today on this Lord's Day. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Are you ready to step out publicly and boldly and say, I am? I hope so. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.